For those of you that have already heard the sermon, it ends at about 17 minutes and 15 seconds. You can stay if you stay. We're liable. We're liable to keep picking. So. Salt's ready. That'll be the first time the cops ever show up to a church service. Can you guys keep it down? Howdy, y'all. My name is Tiffany Keith. I'm the preaching pastor of Heartstrings, Bluegrass, Worship, and Wild Hearts. Welcome to Give God an Inch, where we open ourselves up to God's nudging. I will read one of my sermons, read, not preach, totally different things. What I write and what comes out on Sunday mornings are not the same. After I read the sermon, we are going to take a little bit of time to reflect on it, what I said, why, and maybe what hit the cutting room floor. God, you are our strength and our shield. Our hearts trust in you. In you we have found our courage. Our wild hearts dance for joy. And in our songs, we will praise you. Psalm 28, verse 7. Our hearts trust in you. Let us pray. O God, open us up. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. God, open our hearts that we might feel. And then, O God, open our hands that we might serve you and your love. Amen. One of my favorite moments in ministry is when I sit down with a couple getting ready for marriage. They are so full of hope and joy. In the midst of planning their big day with to-do lists and binders and Excel spreadsheets, the one that brings out the spreadsheet, that's the one I have most of the rest of the conversation with. As I talk about the order of their wedding service, I first talk about ritual, what it is and why it matters. When I was in seminary, one of our, my professors gave us an example of ritual that has always stuck with me. Let's pretend you are part of an ancient tribe living thousands of years ago. You have found a spouse in another tribe a day's journey from the place you have always called home. So you start preparing for your journey, your old life, the way things used to be. Your family starts grieving what has always been, letting go of what was, and celebrating what's to come. After the preparation and goodbyes, you set off for your new home, your new life. This is the liminal space, the space and time between what was and what will be. You're sure of where you intend to go, but at this point, there isn't actually a guarantee that you will get there. This part of the journey is where the vulnerability and uncertainty is. This is the wilderness. The wilderness is where things shift and change and you grow and see. There is so much life in this space. Then you arrive. You are welcome with open arms to your destination. 
There are parties and gifts exchanged. And now, only now, is the ritual complete. Now the new thing is the thing. Weddings are a perfect example of ritual. They're two separate families, two separate lives. Then you have the months and days and hours leading up to the wedding day. Preparation, planning, grieving what was, celebrating what is to be. Then there is a moment when the couple has set their intentions. The families have given the journey their blessing and they set off on their journey. There are no longer two separate families, no, no longer two separate lives, but not yet one. This is the liminal space. During this part of the journey, during this part of the wedding ceremony, there is prayer and scripture and a sermon and maybe music. Then they face one another, make promises and vows and exchange rings. Then there's this moment when they are joined together in holy matrimony. They have arrived. Let the parties and cake eating, present opening, celebration begin. If you look, you will find this pattern of what was liminal space and what's now all over your life. Back when we could go to movies, standing in line for tickets and popcorn, finding a seat, watching previews. Then you transition, the light goes down, the volume goes up. You are transported to another world, another place for a while. When the movie is over, the lights go up, you stretch and head out. This pattern of ritual really is everywhere. You have performed rituals today, in fact. You probably remove your toothbrush from its home, added toothpaste, brushed your teeth, rinsed, maybe even celebrated your newly cleaned teeth with a great big smile and one of those sparks of light with a ding sound to go with it. Maybe not. In fact, right now, this very moment, you are in the middle of a ritual, in the liminal space in between what was and what's new. If you look at the bulletin online, you will see three sections to worship. Can you guess why I picked three? First, an invitation to worship. You're pulling in, finding the station on your car radio, or grabbing your coffee and cuddling up in front of your screen. You're thinking about your day, your week, what's coming up. This is the what was, a time of inviting you to let go of what was, a time of letting go of what was, a time of preparing for the liminal space, putting it all down. And at the end of service is sending, commitment to courageous discipleship. This is the what's now. It's a going out into the world with open hands, serving, loving, living in the world with courage and the grace of God, week after week, living into the courage you are called to. After the invitation to worship, but before the commitment to courageous discipleship, from the first note of the offertory, where we take a moment to open our hands so we can see all that we have as God's, and give back in gratitude through prayer and song and scripture and sermon to that moment when we are all one in the eating of bread and 
drinking of juice. That is the heart of worship, the liminal space. When we set aside life, that we might be present here, the center, the core, the heart of worship. Our hearts trust in you. Dr. Beatrice Berry tells a story of when she was a girl. You see, she grew up doing cleaning work, cleaning work of all kinds. She cleaned houses in the morning and on weekends, and in the evenings, she would clean banks. She was young when she started, 12 or so. She cleaned through middle school and high school, and even later, she would pick up jobs for extra money during college and graduate school. When she was younger, she would catch the bus to and from work. Other women that would spend their days cleaning would, would be at the bus stations with her. I so admire her curiosity. She would ask the older, wiser women waiting with her, how should I clean? What's the best way to clean this or that? Day after day, I would stand there, she said, and ask questions about cleaning. Day after day, there was a woman that was a little more standoffish. She wasn't answering questions I posed to the group. She was not teaching me like the others. But one day, she pulled me to the side, and she told me to always, always clean the light. The first time you go into a house, you bring a ladder to the entryway. Put it right under the chandelier and clean the light. Clean each and every little crystal that is hanging down. Clean the base and the light bulb. No one cleans the light before you. So I did. I took the ladder, my, my cleaning solution, and I scrubbed and polished that light. And at the end of the day, the woman of the house came home, shocked by how beautiful her entryway was. What did you do? She asked. It looked amazing in here. And when her husband came home, he demanded that I got a raise and that I be the one to come back and clean the house. That I do the cleaning from now on. Always take care of the light. If you take care of the light, everything shines. Dr. Barry does not do cleaning work anymore, but the lesson has always stayed with her. There is a light inside of each and every one of us. It needs to be nurtured and cared for. We need to care for this light that our creator created in us to shine brightly in the world. Take care of that light in you. Give it what it needs. It hasn't been talked to. It needs assurance. It hasn't been loved. Give it the music it wants. Give it the dance it needs. Give it the sunshine it so admires. Give it the stars at night. That thing about you that shines so brightly that others want to see it. And she goes on to say, when you do that, you give others permission to do the same. Our hearts trust in you. That light that shines in us, the heart of worship, the center, the core of our being, God. Our hearts trust in you. Years ago, one of our members, Karen Rule, who worships with us online, sometimes here in the parking lot, she shared a daily devotional with us called Jesus Calling. It's unique because it's written, so it is like Jesus speaking directly to us. So listen to one of these devotionals. 
my main work is clear. It's Jesus speaking, remember. My main work is to clear out debris and clutter, making room for my spirit to take full possession. Collaborate with me in this effort by being willing to let go of anything I choose to take away. It goes on to say, I know what you need, and I have promised to provide all of that abundantly. Your sense of security must not rest in your possessions or in things going your way. I am training you to depend on me alone, finding fulfillment in my presence. This entails being satisfied with much or with little, accepting either as my will for this moment. Instead of grasping and controlling, you are learning to release and receive. Cultivate this receptive stance by trusting me in every situation. I found this quote from Jesus Calling in a sermon I found online. It already owned the book, so I went and, and pulled the rest of the quote. And I loved the quote. It, it worked. It worked for this sermon. Uh, and the sermon that I found online, there was more in there. So let me read you a little bit of what the pastor had to say in that sermon. To fully recognize and receive the love and life offered to us in Jesus Christ, we need to make some hard choices. We have to risk letting go of our hold on whatever keeps us from realizing that we need God more than anything in life. Whatever keeps us from letting our relationship with God being high priority in our lives. So that pastor in that sermon goes on to quote C.S. Lewis from his book, The Screwtape Letters. The character, Wormwood, who is the devil in the book, is teaching an apprentice devil how to gain people to their side. Wormwood advises moderation for keeping people from being true Christ followers. Talk to him about moderation in all things, says Wormwood. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel happy about his soul. A moderate religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. And that is where this beautiful, well-crafted sermon, beautiful, heart-filled stories, became a stumbling block for me. Don't get me wrong. I believe in sanctifying grace. I believe God calls us to take care of the light. But if you have watched the news in the last year or the last decade, you will have seen all sorts of people from all walks of life that are moderate in nothing. They have given themselves to the extreme, trusted their hearts to what they thought was God, and were led so far astray. That somehow cleaning up our doubts, our questions, our language, our hurts, our fears, our lives, leads to our light shining in the world. How can I trust fully, learn to depend on God alone, if I can't trust that I know it's God I'm trusting? I'm not saying trusting God in this way is bad, but what if it is? What if that's not what God wants from us? What if God doesn't want us to act like we are robots that just follow without question? cleaning up all the dirt and soot and gunk? What if trusting God with our hearts 
means trusting God with all of it. Fears, doubts, anger, wrestling, questioning. Let us pray. God, our hearts trust in you. We trust you with our tears, our fears, our anger, our joy. Our hearts trust in you. We trust you with our whole selves, our clarity and our uncertainty. Our hearts trust in you. We trust you with our doubts about you, the ways we've gotten you wrong, the ways we've gotten you so right. Our hearts trust in you. We trust you with the light shining from our core. Our hearts trust in you. We trust you with the soot and ash and dust we, that we accumulate. Our hearts trust in you. We trust you with our thoughts, our emotions, our prayers, all the things. Our hearts trust in you. You nailed it. That was beautiful. I pull it off. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I love the prayer at the end. Hi, I'm Kent Ingram, pastor at First United Methodist Church, Colorado Springs. And I'm Tiffany. Okay, good. Well, let me. I want to. I want to talk about ritual a little bit. I, I, I love. I love the the image of wedding as being a place to sort of capture the idea of ritual. And, and how you were way, willing to sort of talk about ritual, both in a, in a sort of formal religious sense, but also in an informal rhythm and pattern of our life, that there, that there is a, a ritual nature to, to all of our existence, to, to, to the way we live our lives. I, I would suspect, um, I, I don't know if this is true, but I would suspect that, that my life is more governed by ritual than yours. I, I would suspect <laughs> that I... I, I repeat myself more often in, in ways that, that you do, but but I, I guess what I what I want to hear from you as you wrote this sermon is to think about why is ritual powerful to you? What is it about ritual that that is powerful to you? So I ended up taking a class in seminary. It was a summer intensive, so it was ten days of driving to Denver and reading like a book that night after class. Um, and the first question is, what is ritual? You know, and, and the professor had us naming things. Like, you know, let's really talk about what ritual is and we'd kind of define it. And then he'd say, okay, based on your definition, <laughs> you know, toothbrushing, brushing your teeth, going to the movies, let's talk about um, all of these different things that may or may not be ritual and what makes it ritual. And because it's not necessarily repetitive, right? A, a wedding in some ways is repetitive, but it's a ritual for the bride and groom that only do it once. I, I mean, so it, I love those thought experiments of just exploring the edges. You know, what is it? What is it not? And then, you know, we spent the rest of the, you know, the two weeks looking at different ways to see ritual. Um, and 
once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. And there is a power in the understanding of what's happening. So when I sit down with my, my couples and when I'm about to do a wedding, I explain what ritual is because when they start wanting me to change around the order of service, I've already, so it's kind of a tricky thing, right? Like I've already explained to them why we do it the way we do it. Like you don't get to just change it around. Like they're like, I want them to see that it's not just thrown things together, that the way we do it and why we do it, um, brings in and of itself meaning. It's not that we do, that we set intentions at the beginning because it flowed well. We set intentions at the beginning because that's where it goes. Um, and then um, it, uh, the other, like, oh man, when we were designing heartstrings. I was very careful about that. So we have this spot in the middle and it's really funny where we where I, where I chose to draw the lines. So at the first note of the offertory, like that's where the heart of worship starts. And from that moment until the, the moment where we're taking, where we're receiving bread and juice. So it's funny because I switch in, in, in nobody notices in the flow of worship, right? But there's a, there's a switch from me. So we receive the bread. We're in this community. This is the, the, the pinnacle of the heart of worship. And then from there, we do the prayer, you know, the prayer after receiving kind of thing and sending out. Um, and that's when it shifts to the sending out. So in part, it helps me design things. And in part, it brings meaning. Do you think that that people hunger for ritual? Not just not just the routines of life, but, but something bigger and deeper. Do you think that, that we're missing ritual in our lives today? I wonder if I wonder if what we're missing, what I was missing, so I wonder if other people are missing is seeing ritual. Hmm. And so and I think you're asking about formal ritual, mm -hmm. you know, I, and I think it's kind of there everywhere. Right. So if you go to a sports team, a sports game, like if you're at home watching sports, right. It, you, you probably are doing some of the same things right before some of the same things right after. If you go to a, to a, you know, a game, you're doing the tailgating stuff, which is the stuff before, and, sure. you know, flipping people off as you leave if you lost. I mean, um, but there's a, so I don't think we're missing ritual. I think we're missing the deeper meaning and the deeper flow behind formal ritual. Hmm. Like understanding that when the bride and groom come in and they're standing on the floor still and we ask them, you know, do you intend to take care of each other? Do you tend on the other side of this ritual 
to, to be married. And we ask their families the same question. Do you, do, do you bless them on their leaving of what was? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one thing to just do it. It's another thing to really understand what that means. You know, I, what came to mind to me, and we've talked about this, I believe, before, but um, I think about funerals. You talk about weddings, but I think about funerals. And I can't, I can't count the number of times when, when I would meet with the family and it was a veteran and, listen, we want it to be simple. He, he wasn't formal. We don't like a lot of rituals. Sing a couple of hymns, say a few words. But we do want the flag presentation at the end. We do want the 21-gun salute. And, and you know, I live in a military town. We live in a military town. The, the people that do those military rites do them very well. That, 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 that's their job. And it is highly formal and highly ritualistic. And, and you know, you, you stand, they march in a certain way, they fold the flag in a certain way, they turn, they kneel. I mean, it, it is all very formal and there's never a dry eye in the place. There's something powerful about that formal ritual that, that appeals to people. And yet, and yet most people would say, I, you know, I don't want it formal. I don't, I don't want, I don't want that. But, but, but I wonder if there's a, a ritual deficit, if there's some, something in us that hungers for the power of that symbol. Um, anyway, I, I don't, you so, know, you don't deal with that. But. My question then is what are they, I mean, clearly they hunger for ritual and they love that ritual, but what are they missing? The, uh, what is it with the church ritual? Yeah that people are either not comfortable with or why, why would they say no to church ritual, but so desire ritual? <laughs> well, yeah, well, I don't know. You're, you're the sociologist, not I. I, I wonder, I wonder if there's not a latent sort of Protestant rejection of things Catholic, you know, that, that somehow our faith is a heart faith, that our faith is a spontaneous, um, re- reaction to God's love. It, it, com- it comes from a place not of formality and ritual. And so in rejecting that expression, we reject it. We've thrown the baby out of the bathwater. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a theory. You could do a paper on so, that. So the different thing, I guess, would be with church and Christian ritual is there's a feeling of, especially in some communities, um, that you do that to earn your way into God's love. Yes, right. And it's kind of what I hear you saying. Yes. So we can accept the military stuff, the military you know, rituals, because it's not, it, 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 as powerful as it is, it doesn't hold eternal damnation for not doing it right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I admit, I, I confess that I, you know, have been watching some, um, some of St. Mary's Catholic daily masses that comes across on my Facebook feed. And, and, um, there's something interesting, powerful, compelling about that. And of course, as Methodists, we're we're not, you know, we 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 are sisters to Catholics. You know, we're not, <laughs> we've not left the fold completely. So there's there's something intuitive to us about that about that liturgy. But but there's something powerful about the liturgy and and and, and the the ritual that's there. So I think there's a hunger for that. Yeah, yeah. and so here would be my other kind of question along this vein is. So we now have been doing this since the end of November. The ritual is different. 
uh, is a new ritual, so it's not an ancient liturgy at all. I mean, it's a psalm, so it sort of is, but um, it, so the liturgy being not what they were used to, but this congregation has been doing it since the end of November. Do you think now that we pointed out last week there's, that there's liturgy, this week that there's a flow, do you think them, those that are here attending, start seeing it and because they see it are more able to be shaped by that, like give themselves into it? I, I hope so. Um, I, I, I hope I hope that um, that they will see the shape that, that it's not just a random collection of words in a random order of service that there was the, that we do this to move us spiritually and emotionally in a certain way. And I, you know, I, I hope that the recognition of that um, makes that real. I, you know, we, we've talked about about worship and my theory of worship, and I I'm a little counterintuitive, I guess. People value creativity, and they, and they and I have lots of colleagues. We have lots of colleagues who change things up all the time and try each week to do something that is very unique and creative around a theme or an idea. And I get that and understand that, and I suspect that it's moving. But, but for me personally, maybe just because I'm who I am and my brain works in a certain way, if I have to spend the service figuring out what's going on, I'm not paying attention to the things that are happening. And so, so I don't change worship very much. Now, I mean, I change the call to worship, I change the invocation, I change the confession, change the affirmations of faith, et cetera. But, but you know what we're doing when we're doing it. So, that, so that hopefully people can focus on what the words are and not on what comes next. And so I hope a little bit in the heartstrings that they see the, the order and are able then to focus on the content rather than you know, the structure and process. So. Yeah, I'm back and forth, right? So as yeah, a personality yeah. type for me, yeah, I, yeah. I am drawn into adventure, into new things, into the unexpected. So not sitting in a worship service for the first um, probably year, year and a half, like every week felt new. Mm. every week felt like I didn't know what was coming because I was still seeing the patterns. And so it kept me a little unbalanced. And I think being a little unbalanced makes you aware of things a little bit more. Yeah, sure. But I wasn't seeing some, I mean, but it did take me getting used to the flow of worship before I could really start paying attention to the content of worship. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. The danger is that you get to the point where you just recite the prayers, where you just are reading the words, you know, that, that it's this again. And uh, yeah, so you have to keep it fresh and interesting, hopefully, by, by the content. So um, can I change it? I want to talk a little bit about, about the shift that you made in your sermon after you talked about worship and the heart of worship and, and, and um, you know, the, the order of your worship and why you do that. You told that story about the lady who cleaned the light. I thought that was a, an absolutely amazing story, just a powerful image. And, and um, t tell me why you used that. What, what were you hoping that story would do in that story? Can I back up a little bit? Sure, of course. So I, I, when I 
sat down to write the sermon, I, you and me kind of talked about this. It might hit the round table. I don't know, but you know, uh, it did hit, well, I did talk about it a little bit at the round table is I had to decide if I, you know, our hearts trust in you. Was I going to focus on hearts mm-hmm. knowing that I get to talk about hearts next week. I get to talk about hearts um, in two weeks for two weeks. So out of a six week sermon series, I think we're going to talk about heart in some way, shape or form four times. Um, or do I talk about trust? What is trust? What in trust for me feels so big. Um, trust is this word that we kind of throw around, but when you start digging deep, there's some very clear things within trust, um, reliability, accountability, um, really good boundaries um, that felt really big to me. And then the other possibility is you. You know, our hearts trust in you. Who is you? Um, Or I could do all three. So that would be a good three-point sermon. Or I could do all three. And I started just really playing with those words. Um, And I was going towards heart. And then, and then I ran into this struggle. I was looking up the word heart in the, um, you know, the blue letter Bible online. I went and found heart and, and the Hebrew word has been translated into heart, but it's the second most it's been translated is into the word mind. So it's not just this emotion. It's more of a core of a center of this place and I and I close my eyes I I don't know if you do this but you know kind of close my eyes and visualize and and let my mind wander and play with it and playing with the word heart there's this spark mm. right this when I close my eyes and visualize visualize the word and kind of let it play when do we use it how do we use it um I the word center comes up a lot for me like the center of who we are that core so including our mind, including our emotions, including all of these other things. Um, and then at the same time, I, um, I, I'm seeing, I'm visualizing this spark, this light in the middle, this um, heart and soul, you know, the light of who we are. Um, and then I went through, <laughs> so when I'm on Facebook, when I see a really good sermon story, I save it. So I save sermon illustration stories. And um, I haven't done this in a while, but I just happened to go back through the folder and watch all the stuff that was in there to see if I had anything really good. This doctor sharing it, it was, um, it was cool. Like it, she, she shares it so well, you know, and you kind of hear where the point is going. And that felt true to me i mean it felt true to me that's why i saved it as a sermon illustration right yeah yeah i I mean (laughs) like i'm amazed you didn't use it earlier you know if i find a great story like that i often just make it fit whatever it is i'm preaching that week oh man you should look in my sermon stories folder on facebook (laughs) like i i got a list of them and a bunch of them um so so and then, and then there's this point, 
I'm running across, you know, I guess what I would say is the theme around giving our whole hearts to Jesus is not a hard one to find online. So I searched trust God and heart, Fred Craddock, hmm. right? Yeah. And, and what I got was sermon after sermon after sermon with story after story, um, illustration after illustration that would have fit. And this one sermon, it was really hard. Like I almost wanted to take, just take the whole sermon, like in my <laughs> notes, I had like copy and pasted, like, like five of the illustrations and put it in my sermon file, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like how much credit do I need to give to this preacher? Cause I'm yeah. pretty sure I just took like three quarters of their sermon. Um, and I'm, and I, I'm reading these words and I'm letting them kind of soak in where the book that the Jesus is calling one and, and it's like, let go of the clutter. So I'm thinking, you know, what is it? Like when I was thinking earlier about heart and I'm thinking about this chandelier cleaning the chandelier, you know, so a heart being mine and emotion and the chandelier being like the light and the, the, the dirt, the dust and stuff. And it felt like an invitation to dig deeper. I don't know how else to explain what that felt like other than something about this isn't feeling right. Mm. And, and there's that moment and I hit it every week, right? Almost every week where I'm like, uh Oh, like I just found the other side of this. Yeah. And, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that because I didn't really know what I was struggling with other than um, trust, trusting God, like, uh, so there's, there's both and there's this image in my head of calling, being called and calling people to trust God with everything. Like just, you know, the, in the Indiana Jones moment where, where he, he throws out the, the dust and then you can see the, the trail that he walked on across the canyon. Yeah, yeah. And, and he couldn't see it before. It was a leap of faith. And like, that's the kind of trust that, that we're so often called for. Yeah. Is just take that leap. You don't know where it's going to lead you. And, and we are called to follow God all the way. And at the same time, I have this image of a man standing in front of the Capitol building with a sign that says, Jesus saves. And what I know is that leap of faith. If, if God is the one that you're taking that leap towards, it'll go good. But if you're taking that leap and you're wrong, you end up in front of the Capitol building with a sign that says, Jesus saves. I think that guy is doing, is trusting in God with him, with, everything mm -hmm. I, I just don't think it's god I, I think he's wrong about who god is yeah, yeah. I, I, so i'm really like so through through the entire week trying to take back trying to take back control it, you know i get to decide who <laughs> god is and who god isn't because if i don't decide then how do i end up with the wrong god yeah I, I, there was this, this struggle for me.
So how do you know? How do you know? Um, I actually came to the conclusion, and I don't say this directly or clearly in um, the sermon itself, that God does not want our full obedience. He wants our full heart. Um, He wants our whole selves, including the dirt, the dust, the arguments, the doubts, the thinking things through. He doesn't want us to be, and I think I say this, um, he doesn't want us to be obedient little soldiers, little robots. Um, And so you taught a class, and part of it's because we've been talking about this some this week, but you know, your class where you talk about um, God is power versus God is love. Yeah. Um, I don't think God's core of who he, of God is, is power. I don't think God calls us to be obedient little soldiers. I think God calls us, God desires us to bring all of it. Yeah, yeah. And that is our whole heart. Yeah. So, So you handle that in the sermon with a prayer, right? I mean, that was... That, that, that was the move towards humility, the move away from certainty, from, from uh, the idea that, that, you know, I'm clear about what I'm supposed to do and I'm going to do it, whatever the consequences are. You know, there's this sort of certainty that leads you to, you know, the capital with a Jesus save sign, to, to a bit of humility. And you handled that with a prayer. Why did you, why did you choose... I've never seen you do this in the sermon. Why don't you choose to end the sermon with, with a prayer? I don't know if I've ever. I, I mean, it's not that I. Often prayers at the end of sermons are used as a transition, right? They're right. used to either repeat what you've already said, to <laughs> clarify what you've already said. To get the band up, yeah. To get the band up. <laughs> but literally, the prayer is the end of the sermon. Yeah. I, I, um, and the funny thing is, is I wrote that first. Hmm. Nothing else came. So I had all these quotes sitting in a, in a Word document from the other sermon mm-hmm. and sat down and wrote that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what made me make that choice other than... I, you know, it felt right. It, it was, it, it brought in, last week I did it, this week I did it. I don't know if I'll keep doing it, but the the repetition of the phrase we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's just where it felt right, where, where I felt like it, it belonged. You know, if I could answer your question, it would be so much easier to write sermons. <laughs> If I could just decide, well, here's how that was. Sure, sure. But but it left the the sermon, it left the response to the sermon clearly on the hearers. I mean, you, did, you didn't tell them, therefore this. Yeah. You, you invited them to pray with you your, your uncertainty, to, to pray with you your, your questions and your doubts and to give all of that to God. And so I think, I think in terms of, a, of accomplishing what it is you wanted to accomplish in the sermon, this works better 
than a therefore do this or think this, right? I mean, I hope so. I mean, I didn't even think about, so here's what I hear you saying, and I didn't think about this, but that the, when we talk about form and shape and method, it's an object lesson. I didn't think about this as an object lesson, right? But we, we kind of, I mean, I realize there's not an object, but in, in what you're saying, what I hear you inviting me to, to see is that like, I didn't just state that they should pray. We went ahead and prayed. I didn't state that they should give themselves to God at all. I just went ahead and prayed that, you know, God, you know, and we yeah. so that's way interesting. <laughs> like, I didn't think of it being a prayer as an object lesson. It just felt like a prayer. And you don't, you don't define God. You don't, you don't say who God is. You, you might in another sermon, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but you, but you let, you let people bring themselves to that God, to that, that big mystery, that thing that's beyond comprehension and, and, and clarity. So I, I, I was surprised. I just had not seen you do that, but I thought I thought I thought it was an effective way to end a sermon in which you raise this question of, yeah, we need to be passionate. Yeah, we need to follow God with all of our heart, whatever that is. But we also need to know that there's a danger in that. Yeah. We may think we're following God when we're not. Yeah. I I had this like uh, moment where I thought I was going to end up taking three quarters of the sermon, you know, explaining my argument. <laughs> to like, like, here is, here's my problem. Like, like we've talked like for all of the podcasts so far about my struggles this week. So I thought my sermon was going to be all about struggles this week. And then I read when I, I uh, looked up, you know, trust, heart, you, or God, Fred Craddock. The second article was written when Fred Craddock had passed away, and he's big in the preaching world. Um, you know, your generation learned to preach from Fred Craddock, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I read that article. Um, it was, here's the, here's the lessons you should learn about preaching from Fred Craddock. And it was seven points. <laughs> and... Uh, one of the points was, you know, you can take them in the wrong direction for 25 minutes in a 26 minute sermon. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, so I take us in the wrong direction. Yeah. And, and I remember saying, and just one of our conversations really quickly, like, I want to leave them with, with really playing in their head. What is trust? And I don't think I ended up doing that, but I think I did kind of leave this, this invitation to really struggle with what are we giving to God? Yeah. You know, which is a trust like the other, like that is a struggle of trust. Yeah. Yeah. I don't answer it. I don't give a whole lot of answers. And that I think I knew I was going to do at the beginning of this week. Sure. Yeah, that's 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 the credit, right? You, you you get them close enough. Yeah, I, I love that. Go on and make it make that last step. If if you get them, you know that's hard. That's hard. To do. Hard, like, but but there was this quote in that article that's like, you know, Fred Craddock 
says, instead of wrestling in your study for 30, for, you know, 30, 50, 10 hours yeah. for a 30 minute sermon, use the 30 minute sermon to invite the congregation to wrestle for 10 hours. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's beautiful. You know, I, it was a, it was just a little new way of seeing. Yeah, to bring, bring them into your study and take them through your questions and your, instead of, instead of solving it all at your desk. Yeah. Coming out and saying, here's the truth. You know, let them, let them journey with you, you know. Yeah. That, that's a, it's a brilliant thing if, we, if you can, if you can do Craddock, you know. We all try. <laughs> we all try. Pale images. I remember the guy that used to preach Sunday night at Riverside after Fosdick would preach Sunday morning, and he used to always say he's like water after wine, you know. <laughs> and we're all water after wine when it comes to Craddock, you know. But but we try. He helps. So. But we try. We try to tell a good story. Well, the other thing in that in that article, it was a really good just blog post, right? Is um, BU. So it talked about how at the time, and I don't know this, but you probably do, that the the standard normalized preacher was you know tall guy with a strong voice, mm -hmm. and so here Fredic, Fred Fred oh. shorter with a squeakier voice, he couldn't yeah. stand up and pretend to be that preacher. No. So he had to use who he was, which was smaller and less, you know, less taking up the room or whatever he was. And, and he used that to his advantage. Absolutely. That's interesting. Absolutely. You know, you, you know, I met him in a restroom at Southern Hills Methodist Church in Tulsa. Um, and he wasn't very tall. <laughs> and, and had this, this high squeaky voice. But, but with Fred Craddock, it's like, you know, he, he pats the rocking chair next to him on the on the on the porch and invites you to sit down. Yeah. And, and and while you're rocking, he, he tells you these stories. And next thing you know, he's got you. You know, he's got you. So I don't know how to be that good of a storyteller. No, well, few few are you are, but uh, but you're a good storyteller. I mean, he just like leans over the pulpit, right? Doesn't he just kind of lean in and? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, he has to have a, sometimes he has to have a box or something to stand on so they can see him above the, the pulpit, wow. depending on the pulpit, yeah, so, yeah, you know, you're right, that was, you know, old, big men, I remember Carlisle Marty, was Southern Baptist preacher, that he used to say, had a voice like God, only deeper, mm. and, and of course, that makes a lot of assumptions, doesn't it, you know, yeah, God, it who God is and what God sounds like, God may sound more like Fred Craddock, here, pull up a chair. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, well, I don't know that I have anything else, Tiffany. What no more there? questions. I'm trying to think if there was any more wrestlings. Oh, I guess the one thing I wanted to say uh, that that struck me as I was going through the quotes I had was the Jesus is calling quote about giving us all to God. And I think, and I want to first acknowledge that I think it was written from a very good place i think the message of give yourself all to god it's old it's ancient um but this time when i was reading it and it and it's kind of talking about get rid of all the clutter in your life focus on god only on god felt like a, an invitation to the extremes it felt like the 
you know, don't question, don't doubt, give it all to God, even if it's scary. Um, and looking back on it, cause it was written, I think in, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but 2015, it was long before 2020. Right. Yeah, um, and, and that, that makes me a, it, felt like brainwashing, which was really interesting to me. And like I said, I think it was a really good motivation where the book comes from. Uh, but I think doubt any moment that you're not fully giving yourself to God, it's a scary statement. Yeah, it yeah. felt, so what it's making me do is really wrestle through how am I being clear? How am I, what are the things that I'm saying that what do they create because it matters what are they inviting people to and I it just it's an invitation for me to be careful about my words you know to not invite people to the extremes but and to invite people like that God like give God an inch thing like yeah. right yeah yeah well you know you, you, you're right I mean we, we have seen we see the results of certainty built on lies. And, and certainty built on lies leads to violence and, and hatred and prejudice and destruction and a whole host of things. And so um, how, how do we not invite people to a certainty built on lies? And, and how, how do we provide a place for questions and, and checks and, and, and community opportunity to, to, to reflect. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's right. We've never, we, it's a different time now, um, I think. And so you're right, that's, that's a question that we've not had to, oh, well, maybe we should have, but we haven't wrestled with until now, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, when we take mystery out of faith. Yeah, yeah, that's good right we we lose we then are certain and if we're certain and wrong because i believe with all that i am and i think i don't know if i say this but i don't know everything <laughs> yeah. if i don't know everything yeah um i believe us as a community don't don't know i i, I don't think us as a world has captured all of possible knowledge there's mm -hmm. more to learn there's more and if I get rid of that mystery and pretend like we know everything, I know everything, or us as a church knows everything, and we get rid of mystery, then we have to start, you know, contorting ourselves around facts that don't fit what we know. Yeah. <laughs> you know then we start having to say, well, because Jesus, because Jesus. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. That, that, that's hard, isn't it? The humility piece, the, 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 uh, the, the, the dissonance between the call to proclaim good news in a clear way and the reality that, that um, we're just flawed human beings doing the best we can trying to hear and interpret what God has for the people to hear. Yeah, that, that, and so, but just being aware of that, just, just being humble enough to be aware that, that I am not the end-all and be-all of theological truth is a good first step. <laughs> it's an invitation into mystery. Come, yeah. come not know things with me. 
yeah, puts yeah. us at a very great disadvantage to the evangelicals. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so they can go out and proclaim exactly what they know, how they know it, when they know it. And mm -hmm. the other advantage, and I didn't, I read this a couple weeks ago, it made so much sense, is if we're going to go out into the world and invite people to come love Jesus, you need people to say no. You need people to take offense to that. And the more that people say no and take offense to that, the, the more clearly defined and certain your community becomes. So then you, you, that's one of the ways you start creating an echo chamber is meeting the people to reject you. Yeah. So it clarifies your lines. Yeah, and, and, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and we are this people that wants the lines really fuzzy. Yeah, it others them in a very clear way. You know, they yeah. They see the other. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and that, of course, that's, that flies in the face of our tradition, which has very fuzzy lines, right? Yeah. Very fuzzy lines, very, you know, it is okay if you, uh, there's a lot of Methodists that also claim a lot of Buddhist thought, right? Like, <laughs> sure. because there's something for them that leans into the mystery of that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we don't outright reject them. We don't other that really. It's like, it's okay if you have different, if you bring your history, your thoughts, sure. your beliefs. I mean, I bring with me into my community this kind of anti harmful Christianity. Yeah. I mean, sure. I bring that. And I've never been rejected from Methodism because I don't accept all of Christianity. No, no, that's right. I mean, we, I mean, God does the transformation. Yeah. Not us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think I'm done and I have to go like switch out laundry. <laughs> so it's been great talking to you and it's really super interesting. And so yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this platform. Anyway, I think we should hand it back off to the band. Let's do that. <laughs>